Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Epicentral. I'm your host, Maddie Lewis, infectious disease epidemiologist. And in today's episode, I'm explaining how to become an epidemiologist every step of the way. But before we get started, I first have a segment called No One Asked But, where I give you my unsolicited commentary and opinions. So for today, I am just going to catch up because it has been, I don't know, a couple weeks, maybe a month or two since I recorded an episode last. I did not intend to take a break, but I actually had to because I was really, really busy. Like I ran out of my extra episodes that I had on hand just in case I got really busy unexpectedly. But yeah, it, it, was, it was just wild. I'm not going to get into the details, but I quite literally did not have time. Otherwise, I would have had to sacrifice uh, just my entire social life, and my social life is a huge foundation of my happiness. So if I would have done that, I would have just been working all the time, and it would have sucked. So next thing I want to say to catch up is it has been a really wild week. So it is December 28th when I'm recording this, and... I got home last Saturday, the Saturday before Christmas, so a week before Christmas. Immediately I got here, I got in the car, and my parents were like, your brother's sick. And I was like, oh Jesus. And I knew Omicron was going around, it was mainly going around New York, but for some reason I was just in a delusion thinking, oh, it'll be fine. Like, I've dealt with COVID, we've dealt with COVID before, it's really contagious, but you know, as long as you wear a mask and stay away from somebody who has it, then you're generally fine. However, I get home on Saturday night. The next day, my brother tests positive for COVID. And then Monday night, my mother gets sick with COVID, or with gets sick with respiratory symptoms. Tuesday night, my dad and I get sick with respiratory symptoms. My mom and dad take at-home tests. They're testing negative. Thursday, we go and get PCR tests. My mom tests positive. My dad and I test negative. And then on Saturday, on Christmas, my dad and I decided to take at-home tests, and we were both positive. So yes, my entire family got COVID the week before Christmas. Uh, I think a lot of other families went through the same exact scenario where they all got sick at the same time or like one by one they got sick and it's just a really crappy situation. So Christmas was canceled. Obviously, we didn't get together with any family members. We had some family and friends bring us groceries and stuff that we needed from the pharmacy. We are all okay. Um, We all got sick somewhere between a cold and a flu. So it was like more severe than a cold, but less severe than influenza, if that makes sense. So our symptoms were scratchy throat, cough, congestion. You might be able to hear my congestion still. It's still a little bit there, but it's, it's basically gone. And, and then just generally not feeling well, feeling tired and swollen lymph nodes. We all really had the same symptoms. If you're wondering, my parents, my whole family is vaccinated. However, my brother does only have one dose. He did have more severe symptoms than the rest of us. Like his cough was a lot worse. For a second there, I think he, like, it seemed like he might have had bronchitis because even on, I think it was his ninth, 10th, 11th day, 
He was coughing really, really badly still to the point where it was just sounded really concerning. And we thought he might have to get medical attention, but he went to the pharmacy and got some bronchade, which is some kind of like bronchodilator, I think, kind of like an inhaler. And that helped relieve some of the symptoms and it's getting better now. He still has a lot of, he still has a cough and he's not allowed to go to work until his cough goes away. So there's that. And then my parents and I were better. My mom was the second sickest because she actually got strep throat on top of her uh, COVID uh, diagnosis. So she got COVID and then I don't know how she got strep throat. I mean, obviously from strep bacteria. I don't know if it was like, I don't even know if strep is opportunistic or and she was just sick, and so it, yeah, or if she, like, picked it up from somewhere, who knows, but she got it, and she had to get antibiotics, and it cleared up very fast, but she's still taking the antibiotics, and then I was, like, the third most sick, if that makes sense, and I'm fine. I'm, like, 95% better now. It's been, oh, it's been seven days, and then my dad was the least sick, and his was the closest to a cold but not quite just a cold. So Omicron is real. No, it's not just the cold. It is a lot, it's a little bit worse for a lot of people, even who are vaccinated. For some people, it might just feel like a cold. It might just feel like a scratch in their throat. But um, I can tell you I'm 24. I'm very healthy. I exercise. I eat quite healthy every week. And it was still worse than a cold for me. Also, I posted all of this on my TikTok, so I'm sure anybody listening to this probably found me through TikTok, but go check those out. They went, like, some of them nearly went viral. Um, It's been really interesting. I've gotten a lot of, like, views on TikTok recently through my COVID videos, so yeah, it's been, it's been a ride. I thought I could ride this pandemic without ever getting it. You know, I figured there's a chance I'll get it. But, you know, I've been really careful through this whole pandemic. However, Omicron is very, very contagious. Could not prevent that one. Okay, now let's get into the episode now that we're caught up for the most part. So in one of my latest episodes called How to Become an Epidemiologist, we went over what you need to do to get admitted into a MPH program. So what work experience, classes, majors, how to apply, etc. Now in this episode, part two, we're going to go over deciding where to go and how to prepare for grad school and what to expect. So if you made it through episode one, you know how to apply, but after you get in, because you're all smart and amazing and accomplished, so I know you will have multiple choices of where you want to go. So how do you make that decision? Just like when you're deciding where to go to college, there are similar factors to consider for where to go to grad school. So number one, of course, is location. And these are not in order of importance, by the way. I just put them in a random order. So number one, location. Will you have to move and do you genuinely want to or have to move? So for some people like myself, grad school was the first time they are moving away from their hometown or home state. 
When I went to college, it was 30 minutes away from where I went to high school. So even though in college I was away from my parents for a couple of years, I didn't know exactly what it was like to be 100%, have a clean slate, and completely start over in a new environment. And if this is you, please know that the transition is not always easy. For most people, it's actually pretty hard. I'm not going to lie. But I do think that starting over can be a really wonderful thing. Anyway, location can be really important for grad school. For most epidemiologists, your master's is your last major step in your formal education. So where you go to school is where you make connections and oftentimes where you can network to find a job. Now, plenty of people can and do find jobs elsewhere outside of the place where they went to grad school through their connections or just through cold applying, and that is totally possible. I mentioned this in a previous video, but the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that the job outlook for epidemiologists will grow to 30% from 2020 to 2030. And if you ask me, I simply don't think people will generally have a problem finding epidemiologist jobs in general. But there are exceptions to that, but we'll discuss that in the third and last episode of this series. Also, with location, a huge thing with grad school is finding jobs and connections with organizations and businesses when you're a student. And again, a big part of those connections is based on location. If you have a specific organization in mind, like CDC or FDA or like a specific pharma company, then that might help you make a decision on where to go location-wise. Location is not everything though. It is a big factor when it comes to finding a job, which is one of the most important things. Outside of finding a job, what you can afford, your lifestyle, your health, and your happiness are also hugely tied to your location of where you're living for grad school. For example, if you can't at all imagine yourself in a big city in cold weather or in like the hustle and bustle, then maybe Columbia in New York City is not the best choice, even if it has the Ivy League name. If you hate Chicago or LA, maybe don't go there either. You get the point. On the other hand, MPH programs are only two years, which is really, really short. You'll be at least 22 when you start grad school, and a lot of people will be older than that by the time that they start. And at that age, two years flies by so fast. It's like nothing. So if you know you're going to be miserable in a location, don't go. But if it's somewhere that you can temporarily go because you'll be happy with the program, then definitely consider it because again, two years flies by. For me, I was so happy with the program I went to because it's located in a place where I could see myself living afterwards and that's exactly what I ended up doing and honestly, I'm very, very happy with my decision. Weather was a huge thing for me. It still is. I cannot stand the cold, you guys. I I can't do it. I like being outside. I'm not like a camper or hiker or like an outdoorsy person per se, but I do like to be in warm weather. And when I'm like out running errands or shopping, I like nice weather. I love meeting up with friends on like rooftops and going to outdoor breweries. I just prefer to be outside when it's nice and I like it to be nice for most of the year. 
And growing up in Kansas City, it wasn't necessarily like that. So I definitely like how it is like that where I live now. Also, I've been playing recreational sports and it's really nice to be able to play year round outside and not have to do indoor soccer. So yeah, I'm just, I'm very happy with my decision. Okay, number two, another factor to consider when picking an MPH program, you need to consider the cost. Especially if you're coming straight from undergrad, you may not know the toll that student loans can take on you. For a lot of grad students, we essentially have to take out student loans. There's not much of a choice for most of us. Not all programs be worth the cost for you. So one, you can totally do the math yourself to determine what you think you'll be making salary-wise after you get your MPH and see if it's even financially worth it to go. Like, are you going to even be able to pay this back? And like, when will you be able to pay it back? Because even if you can pay it back over 5 to 10 to 20 to 30 years, doesn't mean that you necessarily want to take on that financial burden. And often, life comes with a lot of unexpected costs. Like if you become a single parent, if one of your family members gets sick, if you get an unexpected illness, etc. Or even good things, like if you decide to start a family, but it was just sooner than expected, or if you get like this really crazy good opportunity to move into a more expensive city or a different country. Th those types of things life will hand you and you can't necessarily plan every penny of your financial future. So keep that in mind when it comes back to paying off your student loans in the future and the type of long-term commitment that is. So student loans are a really big thing to consider, and I'm sure you know this by now, but EPIs don't make that much salary-wise. Like, you most likely won't be making six figures when you start, okay? There's a good chance, depending on what you do, you may never actually hit six figures as an epidemiologist, but I'm going to talk a lot about that in the third episode, so don't worry, don't freak out, but we're going to talk about it. There are a lot of ways, of course, to get scholarships and funding so you don't have to take loans or as many loans. The absolute best way to pay for your MPH is simply to get a scholarship because that means you don't have to do anything except apply, usually. Maybe there'll be a few required events or meetings you have to go to for the scholarship, but otherwise, that's just the simplest thing. There's no, like, commitment or contract. However, these scholarships are usually only given to one student, five students, ten students max per program to fund their entire program. So you really need to stand out to get one of these full tuition scholarships and you need to do research first of all to see if your program even offers full tuition scholarships. And if they don't, you can always look for non-school specific ones as well, but those are also really competitive. So just keep that in mind. I know you can do it. I know everybody here is amazing. However, just keep in mind. They are competitive. There are also, of course, partial scholarships that can help, and I would really advise everyone to at least apply to those partial scholarships, at least a couple of them, because every dollar counts and you might also make connections through applying to scholarships. Honestly, I used to be really good at finding scholarships when I was in high school, but I didn't apply to that many for grad school, maybe only three or four. So I really don't know what people even do nowadays to find scholarships. 
I'm sure it's changed since when I was in high school because I was like eight years ago. So I will not be giving advice on that, um, but I'm sure if you Google it, you'll be able to figure it out. The second best way to fund your program outside of just a normal grant or a scholarship is to enter some kind of graduate assistantship. These are like special employment contracts where a graduate student agrees to work for the school and the school will essentially waive their tuition. It's actually a really good deal. It's a really good trade if you ask me, considering that most students, you'll never be able to pay your tuition from any other part-time job. For example, I know of a program, I believe it costs like maybe $7,000 a semester or a year, but you would never be able to pay for it with a part-time job. However, they offer graduate assistantships, and with that part-time job, you don't get paid but they pay for your tuition, so it's a really good deal. However, a large portion of graduate assistantships are called GTA positions or graduate teaching assistants, and they will often teach undergrad classes, particularly particularly 100 or 200 level classes or labs. Some will also help assist in teaching major courses and doing grading for the class. There are a few things you need to keep in mind about graduate assistantships. Number one, not all MPH programs offer them. You can Google programs, you can call them, you can email them to try to find out if they do have graduate assistantships for students in the MPH program and to see if you qualify. And always make sure to ask them if they're offered to first and second year students because some of them only offer them to second year students. I know I found out about several graduate assistantships through Reddit, but be careful on the r slash public health subreddit. It can be helpful for that kind of thing. However, it can also be really discouraging because there are, for some reason, a lot of unemployed people complaining on that subreddit, and I know it scared me thinking I would never get employed, but I had no problem whatsoever, so just be careful. Also, number two about graduate assistantships, they vary in quality. I mainly hear about this issue when it comes to PhD students, however, it definitely applies to master's students as well, but some graduate assistants are genuinely overworked, exploited, or even abused. I'm not saying that to scare you, but it is a actual, but it is an actual systemic issue that happens in academia. So do your research and don't be afraid to look at news coverage and even find students on LinkedIn and like maybe ask them about their experiences directly. Just make sure that they're happy and would recommend that program or their job to other students. You could even ask them about their life balance if they're willing to share that information. And again, I hope that it doesn't scare anyone because I do think a lot of graduate assistants are happy and probably feel lucky to have the opportunity to work for their tuition, um, but just do your research. Okay, and last point with graduate assistantships, they all work differently based off of their specific contracts from my understanding. So sometimes the assistantship will give you a living stipend. This is more common with PhD programs rather than MPH programs, but they do exist. And for those who only pay tuition, you have to figure out a way to pay for your living costs because you're working a part-time job, but it doesn't actually give you money. So some people who can 
will live at home with their parents, others will have to save a ton of money, and some have their parents who help pay, some use loans, and some people may be able to find another job, but unless you're working like at least 20 hours a week at your paying job, which would actually make you a full-time student and a full-time worker, then you probably can't afford to just pay for your living expenses. Plus, it's risky because unless you have an emergency fund or family support, if something happens and you can't work your job, like if you get COVID, then um, then you're going to be too broke to make rent. And yeah, that's just sketchy. So keep that in mind. Sorry, that was convoluted. I think I'm in a point and a point and a point. So let's get back to ways to fund your program. Number one was scholarships. Number two was graduate assistantships. Now let's talk about number three, which is just miscellaneous. I'm just putting everything else in this category. Another way to fund your program outside of graduate assistantships and scholarships is just like other types of programs. I know of one where you can do this after school program for like elementary age kids. I can't for the life of me find the name or remember the name of this program. Ugh, I feel like it's at the tip of my tongue, but I cannot think of it. Other examples of programs are like AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, the military, U.S. Public Health Service, Teach for America, and other government-funded programs. Some of these will straight up exchange years of service for school, others will pay a certain amount of money towards tuition, and others won't pay, but some schools will give you scholarships if you did work for somewhere like Peace Corps. Another government-funded option are some local, state, or federal options. An example of this is a state program called Choose Ohio First. But yeah, do your research and you might be able to find more programs like that one, especially programs where you serve in rural areas. I can imagine there being a decent amount of those available. Lastly is to use your employer to pay. This, of course, only works if you work full-time somewhere and that will take a lot of thinking ahead if you're still an undergrad and you'll probably need to work full-time for at least a year or two in that company and then go to grad school and keep working for that company probably while you're in grad school. And for some people, working full-time and being a student full-time, that is just too much. So just keep that in mind. Okay, number three. Again, I'm at a point and a point and a point. So overall, we were going over factors to consider when choosing a grad school. Number one was location, number two was cost, and now let's talk about number three, which is you need to consider what they have to offer academically and professionally. Things like mentorship programs, professional organizations, extracurriculars, alumni programs, they can all have a big impact on what your professional network you create for yourself in those two years will look like. And your professional network will have a big impact on finding a job and sometimes even your entire career. Somewhere like Emory Rollins School of Public Health has a huge advantage because it's literally across the street from the CDC, which gives students a huge networking advantage with CDC employers, or sorry, CDC employees. Somewhere like Harvard T. Chan School of Public Health has a huge advantage because it's Harvard. It's the most prestigious university. It has top research and researchers. You'll be connected with some of the most world-renowned people and programs. Somewhere like Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health 
also has huge advantages with connections because, well, it's Johns Hopkins. Also, you should know that some programs are more focused on certain things. So more, so some are inherently more focused on research, others more on federal government work, and some just don't even have a focus. Other academic and professional offerings are things like international travel. Some students have global health programs. Some schools have global health programs for MPH students that can attract certain people in as well. Okay, number four, I'm just going to consider these last points altogether in like an other category. So another factor to consider when picking a program is prestige. Now, prestige is a made-up thing, usually less based in things that should matter and more based in things like just the history of wealth and is often connected with just a history of racism, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. In the society we live in, prestige is still a factor that can really impact someone's career. For a lot of students, getting into a prestigious school like an Ivy League is most realistic for their MPH when that would have never been an option for undergrad. And again, prestige is a real thing. However, I'm sure all of you know that nothing is guaranteed and just because you go to like Harvard doesn't mean you're necessarily going to find a job that's going to make up for the cost of that expensive school or a different school. And yeah, so it's just not going to happen for everyone. And not everyone should even care about prestige. A lot of people just want their degree so that they can get a job and keep working. They don't really care about the label. And a lot of employers honestly don't care either. So never pick solely on prestige, but it is a factor that some people do consider and it makes sense. Another thing that I think is actually quite big is program type. So if you're a healthcare worker, like a PA, a nurse, a doctor, you might be able to apply to an executive program. That could be something like a fast track program, or it could be like a part-time thing. I think that means different things for different programs. Also, some MPH programs might have a full-time option. Some might be hybrid. Others, like ones with asynchronous classes, are better for full-time workers doing school full-time or part-time along with their careers. Other MPH programs are also dual programs. So if you're a med student, a business student, a nursing student as well, you can get your MPH with that other degree, if that makes sense. Okay, now the last thing I want to say about picking a grad school, which probably should have been discussed in episode one, but I forgot. Consider leaving the U.S. Now, I know very little about this, because obviously I never did it. I I don't have any friends who have done this, so you guys are going to have to do this research on your own, but it is absolutely possible to get a college degree or a graduate degree outside of the United States, and I think that would be a really incredible, amazing experience, and a lot of times it is considerably more affordable. So not only could you go to college, let's say, in like France, but it could be significantly cheaper than going to college in Kansas, which is wild to me. Sometimes it is actually completely tuition-free or just like half the price of what you would pay here. So it just totally depends and only a portion of students would even be able to pull something like that off. I know a lot of people 
they don't want to leave their family, like they have responsibilities at home that they can't leave. But um, if that is even at all possible for you, I would definitely think it's worth looking into. However, I can't say I regret any of my academics so far in life, but I do regret not at least looking into going international for college or for grad school. So do your Googling, look into YouTube and TikTok and wherever to find Americans who did this and what they think about their programs. Oh, and you don't always need to learn a new language for these programs. There are plenty of European universities that are totally in English and are English friendly. Okay, so those are the factors at bare minimum that you will want to consider when choosing an MPH program to go to. There are others, of course, that you need to consider, like if you want to get a PhD afterwards at the same school that you went to, your MPH program, uh, etc. But those are just the basics that I discussed. Now let's move on to how to prepare for grad school and what to expect. So there is no number one thing all students need to do to prepare for their MPH program. There isn't like one book to read or things you need to learn beforehand, but here is what I personally think you should do to prepare. I would mentally prepare for the life change that is ahead. For some people, it is relatively minimal. For others, they will be moving cities, states, or even countries and actually preparing yourself mentally, I think, is really important. You can do this by journaling, talking to friends or family, going to therapy, deciding who you want to be in this new life, if you want to make any changes to yourself. You could listen to other students online, talk about their transitions to grad school. You can even watch YouTube vlogs of people who went to grad school etc. It might sound silly, but I do think it's a good idea to prepare yourself mentally. Then, of course, there are the physical preparations with logistics. Like, how are you moving there? Should you try to find furniture now or in your new location? One of my friends had to ship his car from one coast to another to have it for grad school. Will you sell your car and will you need a new one? Are you going carless and using public transit? Are you going to have to find an apartment and a roommate? And of course, do you need to save money before you go? If anything is obvious to you guys listening, I'm no financial expert, okay? And I think I'm legally required to say this. None of this is financial advice. Don't sue me. But what I do have to say is saving up money in the form of an emergency fund is one of the single best financial decisions I've made for myself. An emergency fund is a designated savings account that you make for yourself that is separate from a normal savings account because the emergency fund is only, and I mean only, used for emergencies. Any amount in this emergency fund, even as small as $500 to $1,000, is extremely useful. But a lot of financial experts will recommend at least three to six months of living expenses in your emergency fund. So if it costs you $1,900 a month for the bare minimum like rent, utilities, insurance, and bills, then that means that you ideally will have $5,700 saved in your emergency fund at any given time. And I know that some people are thinking, oh my god, that's literally impossible. 
And for some, probably many people, it is entirely impossible to spare any money because you're either paycheck to paycheck or you're just straight up negative most months and using credit cards or borrowing money from family or whatever. And if you're in a situation like that, then yeah, like that's obviously not going to work. However, I'm guessing that if you're listening to my podcast about getting into grad school and becoming an epi, then you likely have some level of financial stability, most likely, for the majority, and can figure out how to make this work for you. Even if you're broke, I know I was broke in college and through grad school, but, and I think nobody wants to hear this, but if you can afford to get yourself a coffee and go out with friends every week, in most circumstances, you are also able to spare a couple of dollars every week for your emergency fund. And if you plan things early, like when you're in college, then it makes it even easier. Spare a $50 bill from your birthday money, spare $200 from your tax return, spare $30 off your paycheck, and in a year or a couple of years, you'll have a full emergency fund. But again, this is not financial advice, it's just been really important for me to have one. And again, it also doesn't have to be three to six months even having a small amount like $500 just in case your car breaks down and like something crazy happens or you lose your job or whatever, having an emergency fund is imperative. Young people especially, but honestly everybody, underestimates the costs of unintended circumstances. That's partially because those circumstances are, well, unintended. I don't intend for my dad to lose his job, God forbid, and lose his health insurance and then need to go to the doctor. But if he did, I would be able to make sure that he can go because I have an emergency fund. Well, hopefully he has one too. And I always want to make sure that I can cover myself or even a close family member if something just absolutely crazy happens. We are in a crazy, wild pandemic and a literal coup tried to take over the American government last year. So let me tell you, anything could happen, you guys. Be prepared and just have money set aside for emergencies. Anyway, how are other ways to prepare for grad school? Well, I would suggest having the right clothing. No, this is not an excuse to go buy an entirely new wardrobe if you can't afford it. But if you are coming straight from college and you're one of those girlies whose entire closet is t-shirts, leggings, and sweatshirts for class, then sister, you need to get the right clothes for grad school. In most grad school settings, it is perfectly acceptable to wear casual clothes, but keep in mind, casual in undergrad and grad school might be a little different. Most people in grad school wore jeans or like a casual shirt to school. Nothing crazy and nothing fancy. Some people did often wear sweats or t-shirts, other people often wore professional clothes, but I personally wouldn't recommend wearing sweats and t-shirts all the time. I would say it's better on most days to look more presentable than gem attire. However, I do think it's totally fine to occasionally wear like gem clothes and stuff, like that's totally, totally fine. But most of the time, I would try to look at bare minimum casual, like jeans. Like, even if they're ripped, honestly, just, yeah, I just think that's better. One thing I think all grad students need is at least one outfit that is fully business attire, like business, and one or more outfits for business casual. 
there will likely be several occasions where you will need business casual, which is like the standard work office attire. I'm sure most people know what business casual means. Google it if you don't. There will be likely at least one occasion or or a couple where you will need business attire. Business attire is less common in public health. Like people don't typically wear that to work. And I can only think of a few occasions where it is needed in grad school, but you will need it at some point. So like interviews, sometimes business is recommended. It is the safe bet to go with business um, in an interview instead of business casual. Number two, big presentations. Like if you have a thesis presentation, although sometimes business casual works for that, but it just depends on your program and what they expect you to wear. And three, miscellaneous events, like some conferences, job fairs, and more formal meetings, stuff like that. Because of COVID, I only needed business attire like maybe twice. I think my interview at the health department and the job fair, it's a good idea to wear business to those. And I would have probably only needed my business attire two to three more times after that. So really, you only need one, maybe two business outfits And honestly, I got my dresses and my blazers at the thrift store where I have gotten a substantial amount of my closet from. So it can be affordable. Along the same lines, you will need a bag or backpack. Obviously, I never carried much except my laptop and a few folders to organize my notes and my homework. Um, And then I would carry around my lunchbox in my backpack. So I used my backpack from college, and if your backpack from college is in good shape, honestly, just do the same thing. And before you go out and, like, buy a printer or textbooks, I would honestly just wait for class to start. First of all, with a printer, you don't know if you're even going to have to print off anything, and your school might give you printing money automatically through your tuition, so you might as well just wait and see what that situation is. And number two with buying textbooks, almost always with buying textbooks before class, you set yourself up to overbuy things for like hundreds of dollars that you will never end up touching. I know for me in college, the only books I ever touched were my lab booklets. Those were always required because they give us instructions on how to do the lab and they had our homework in them. So like we really had to have them. Also like the novels that we'd read for my English type classes in college. I had to actually purchase those, although you can buy ebooks and stuff too. But outside of that, I maybe used a one textbook, if any, for my science classes. If I would have bought all the textbooks that were advertised as being required for class, I would have spent nearly a thousand dollars or more on textbooks that I never used because I just never use my class textbooks and the vast, vast majority of people never touch their science textbooks. So seriously, in, so seriously in grad school, same thing. Just wait until class starts. 99.9% of the time, if you wait, you aren't going to miss any assignments or get penalized in any way. Most professors will give you a grace period of like two or three weeks and at worst, and worst comes to worst, if you really need your textbook that soon, you can always use a classmate and just ask them, see if you can take a few pictures of it in class um, for the first week and then you'll be fine. 
But honestly, some of y'all are neurotic and impatient with school. So just just wait until your professor says that you actually actually need it for class. Okay, and those are all my tips for grad school, preparing for grad school. Lastly, I want to quickly go over what to expect. In terms of academics, many people think their MPH was easier than their undergrad, especially if they studied something like biology in undergrad and you know, those programs tend to have very high expectations and are super demanding. However, not all people felt that way. I do have one friend who thought the MPH program was actually harder than their undergrad, but, you know, everyone's different. So just know that majority of my friends actually thought undergrad was harder and grad school was easier. And I agree. Unless your program has suggestions or requirements, I think the majority of people matriculating into an MPH program, there probably isn't much to do to prepare yourself academically. I don't think there is ever a point or an advantage to trying to learn any of the material before you start. I mean, you're going to learn it better in class anyway from an expert than, than you trying to self-learn scientific concepts. That just never goes very well in my opinion. But if you do enjoy reading about epi or public health, then of course you can do that. There are plenty of really great books about those topics, but it's not going to give you an edge per se. Only do that if you actually want to. Also, the culture of some schools may be different. So again, it's best to do your research and talk to student ambassadors and representatives to see, you know, what it's like, but, you know, maybe your school is kind of competitive or maybe your school is more collaborative. In my program, some people were weirdly competitive and were always talking about jobs and interviews and internships and relationships with professors and all of that stuff, and not in, like, a good positive way, but in, like, a kind of weird competitive way And I would really, really discourage everybody going into an MPH to stay away from just like weird competitive attitudes. No matter the environment, I think it's honestly best to either move in silence and just vibe out in privacy or with a close circle, or if you're extroverted like me and you can't shut up, then uh, just come with a good attitude of like gratefulness and collaboration and encouraging your classmates to do well and all of that. Your classmates, like celebrate your classmates when they have their accomplishments and lift people up and help people with their homework, stuff like that. Don't girl boss and gatekeep and gaslight. It's a funny meme, but don't actually do it. The last thing I will say is, again, some programs might be a little more formal than undergrad, so stay professional but at the same time, have fun. My grad school before COVID was literally so fun. I tried to stay a little more professional on campus and tried not to dress like too frumpy all the time. However, we did have many events where there was free alcohol and getting buzzed or even belligerently blackout drunk was actually perfectly normal at certain school events, believe it or not. So just have fun and vibe out. So for everybody going for their MPH listening to this, I hope this was helpful and I hope you have a really fun and worthwhile two years. Okay, have a good week. Bye!